my daughter and her now husband were joining me and the rest of the family at a lodge in a state park in West Virginia. It's been about a year ago now. And like all good millennials, they had no felt need for a map, relics from the past. Neither had they a felt need to ask for directions or to write down those directions. Nor did they have a need to follow the signs along the way because, well, they are millennial and they had GPS. GPS, the mountains of West Virginia. You know where this story's going, don't you? The time arrived that my daughter and her now husband should have been at the lodge, but they were not. My phone rings. My daughter launches, I mean, begins to speak. We are so lost. We followed our GPS and now we're in some godforsaken place on a barely one lane road, hoping we don't roll over into the gorge below. There are no signs anywhere. We don't know where we are. I said, okay, tell me how you got on that road in the first place. Well, we got to a a traffic light in this little town called Athens and we turned. Hello? Kate? Hello? Oops, no reception. Darn those mountains. Oh, well. About an hour later, Kate and Roy arrive. They had eventually spotted a human, a weathered woman. And before you ask, yes, she had a few teeth that reportedly did not appear to be in the best of condition. A scan of the woman revealed no evidence of a shotgun. And so they ratcheted up their nerves and they asked from this woman and received from her good directions. So after some delicate care and some gentle pats and lots of hugs and saying, it's okay now, it's okay. You're safe now, you're safe now. Frazzled and frantic nerves were settled and all was well. That story, true story, great reminder of what life is like when we don't follow the right signs. We go the wrong way. We get lost, we get frazzled, we get frantic. Here's the good news. The Lord has something so much better for all of us than that. Instead of lostness, he has for us foundness. Instead of frazzled, he has for us peace. Instead of frantic, he has for us calm. But here's the very best thing. Instead of death, he has for us life. Yep. That's what we celebrate this morning the resurrected life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that because he lives, we too shall live, but we must follow him into that life. So this morning, we're gonna consider some of the signs that will lead us to Christ. Some of the signs are explicit. Some of the signs are implicit, but they all point to Jesus Christ as the one in whom we should believe. Jesus Christ, the one in whom we will find life, which is neither frazzled nor frantic. But we must follow the signs because we must believe in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm gonna ask you to open to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in the pew in front of you. And when you have found John chapter 20, 
I'm going to ask you to stand as we do here out of honor for the inspired word of God. The Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, beginning verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary of Magdala went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And when he said, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas called Didymus. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. When the other disciples told him they had seen the Lord, he declared, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, for inspiring John to write it, for telling us the story and the good news of the resurrection. And now, Father, we pray that as we consider this story once again, that your spirit within us and among us will join the truth of your word as it goes out and that within us there will be great transformation, that there will be among us people who believe in you and follow you deeply and from the heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before we get started, let me just tell you this. If you go online, you'll find tips for preaching on Easter Sunday. And the number one tip is don't preach too long. Keep it short. Let me just tell you, I don't pay any attention to that. Because I say if you get people one time a year, keep them as long as you can. Right? So are we all good? Relax, because it's not going to be short. But we're good, right? All right, here we go. Notice in verse 30 that John refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. The signs were miracles, but to John they were so much more than that because a miracle can be this thing that we we just look at it. We examine it. It interests us. We're awed by it until something else comes along. But for John, a miracle is more than that. A miracle is a sign that points us in the right direction. And so he records signs for us here in this verse. Let's follow those signs. The first sign that John presents here that points us to believe in Jesus is the stone that was rolled away. You heard the story. Mary goes to the tomb while it's still dark outside. That's no surprise. Mary was the last to leave the cross and the first to arrive at the tomb. Such was her love and such was her devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. When she arrived at the tomb, before she got there, she noticed that the stone that had been rolled over the covering of the tomb had been rolled away. And as soon as she saw that stone had been rolled away, she knew something was amiss She assumed the body of Jesus had been stolen, and so she ran to tell Peter and John, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Mary missed the sign. She didn't follow the sign to belief. It did not occur to her in that moment that Jesus was resurrected, that he was alive, which is, by the way, Great evidence that the resurrection story is true. It wasn't even in the mind of someone who loved Jesus so dearly and was so devoted to him to make up a story about him that would present him as someone other than who he really was. So instead, she believed that the rolled away stone meant that someone had stolen the body. So she goes and gets Peter and John. And they all return to the tomb And Peter is the one who enters the tomb first. And then John follows him. And there they find the second sign. There is no body in the tomb. Instead, they see the third sign. These 
strips of linen that had been wrapped around the body of Jesus. Now think about an Egyptian mummy for just a minute, and you'll kind of sort of understand the burial practices of the Middle East. Strips of linen that had been used for Jesus' body. How strange that the strips would have been unwound. Who would have taken them off? How could they have taken them off? I don't mean to be too graphic here, but when we consider what has happened to the body of Jesus over the last three days, the severe, brutal beating, the crucifixion on the cross, it's not difficult for us to imagine what linen strips applied to the body like that, what would happen and how difficult it would be to remove them. And then Jesus adds the detail that the cloth that had been around Jesus' head had been folded up and was lying separate from the other linen. Yet another sign that something really strange has happened here. No robber would have or could have gone to such lengths. Our house was robbed many years ago while we were on vacation. And I assure you the thief was not neat and tidy. He did not straighten everything up and run the vacuum before he took off with my car that he stole from my driveway. Instead, every single drawer in our house had been emptied on the floor. Every box and every closet had been emptied on the floor, including the box of family pictures that my wife had spent weeks organizing chronologically. But she showed that robber. She's never put him back in order since then. <laughs> True story. It was a mess. That's how thieves operate. A robber attempting to steal a body would not have had time or motivation to remove these strips from the body and then fold them up neatly. So here's another sign. But Mary still does not follow the sign to belief and to life. Because after Peter and John leave the tomb and go back to their home, Mary stays behind the, outside the tomb crying. Why is Mary crying? Why isn't she excited about what might be possible? What might be possible with a stone that's been rolled away and linen that's been neatly folded? Why is she crying? That seems to be the question of the day. She enters the tomb. The angels speak to her. Woman, why are you crying? She turns around and she sees Jesus. And she doesn't recognize him. But he says to her, woman, why are you crying? You would think Mary would start to, to clue in. Why does everybody keep asking me? Why am I crying? But she doesn't. Because at this point, Mary is too hopeless and too lost and too frazzled and too frantic to see the signs. But finally, when Jesus speaks her name, she recognizes him, she falls at his feet and she clings to him. And finally, finally, she believes. Mary has followed the signs that have led her to belief. And so she runs and tells others, I have seen the Lord. When we think of the story of Mary, none of us in this room should believe that the Lord does not want us to get it. We are in the hands of a merciful and compassionate Savior. Jesus has zero approach, re reproach for Mary here. 
He doesn't ask her, Mary, why did you show up at my tomb with all these spices to anoint my body? You should have known my body wouldn't be here. I told you over and over that I would rise again. He doesn't ask Mary, why didn't you get it when you got here and saw the stone rolled away? He doesn't say, why didn't you get it when you saw the strips of linen neatly folded? No, the Lord is patient. In fact, Peter, who did not believe at this moment either, will write in his second letter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's good news, isn't it? Good news for people who have not yet followed the signs to Jesus. Good news for those of us who will not follow the signs to belief. Peter remembers the Lord's patience with him. He saw all the same signs that Mary saw that morning. And yet when evening comes, after an entire day has passed, Peter is locked away with some of the other disciples in a room because they are afraid of the Jews. They are afraid that the Jews who demanded the death of Jesus, who said crucify him, will come and take their lives as well. Frazzled, you think? Frantic, yeah. Peter did not follow the signs to belief until Jesus entered the room. And when Jesus entered the room and Peter saw him, he believed. Because you know what? The Lord is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's good news, isn't it? Good news for people who have not yet seen the signs or followed them to belief. The Lord is patient with Peter until Peter repents and turns away from his unbelief. John was a little different than Peter and Mary. When he saw the empty tomb, he believed, but he did not yet know what it meant to believe in the resurrection. And John did not yet know the implications of resurrection power. The power that the apostle Paul describes this way in Ephesians 1. He says, it is an immeasurably great power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That is resurrection power. But John did not follow the signs to that power. He too was locked away in fear with Peter and the rest. Frazzled? Yeah. Frantic? But the Lord is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's good news, isn't it? Good news for those who have yet to believe the signs. Good news for those who will not follow the signs to belief. And then, of course, there is Thomas. <laughs> Poor Thomas. History hasn't been kind to him. But we find in Thomas uh, a kindred spirit. He will not believe. Even when his nine closest friends say, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. Thomas says, ah, unless I see him, I will not believe. How far has Thomas exalted himself above his friends? And listen, we do the same thing. It's all about our opinion, right? That's, that's how highly we think of ourselves. Uh-uh, 
I don't care what you say until I see it. I'm not believing it. But the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so the Lord wants Thomas to repent of his unbelief as well. And so he condescends and he gives Thomas the very thing he asks for. One week later, Jesus shows up. Thomas, right here, right here in my hands, right here in my side. The very thing that Thomas requested. And Jesus said to him, stop doubting and believe. I want us to think about this as well. It costs us not to believe. You know, a week is not a very long period of time. But that's what Thomas lost. A whole week, Thomas could have lived a life of joy. The Lord is alive. For an entire week, Thomas could have lived a life of excitement. The Lord is alive. For an entire week, Thomas could have been free from frazzledness and franticness because the Lord is alive. But Thomas forfeited all of those things because he would not follow the signs to belief. And so he lived another week in lostness and fear. So know this, as long as we don't follow the signs to belief, we forfeit all that Thomas forfeited when he would not follow the signs. We think we're better off when we do not follow, when we don't live in belief, when we travel down the road we want to go down, the road of grudge holding, the road of vengeance. When Jesus signs pointing this way, he's pointing to forgiveness, right? We want to go down the, the road of self-centered indulgence and stinginess when the Lord is saying, follow this way to, to a generous and cheerful heart. Many are the roads we want to walk down that don't lead to life, but we refuse to see the signs because that's the way we want to go. I'm just saying that's to our detriment, that's to our frazzledness, and that's to our own franticness. But here's the good news. In the end, Thomas's testimony is the most beautiful. When he sees, he says, my Lord and my God. And so John's gospel ends the very way he began it. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so now, they followed the signs. They followed the signs, and they have followed the signs to life. Jesus, you are God. You are my Lord. You are my God. That's the confession, the good confession that's following the signs will lead us to. But these are the explicit signs of John's account. Signs that John is honest enough to tell us about himself and about his friends who also found this whole resurrection business very difficult to believe. And so John writes to us so that we will believe what was really difficult for them to believe. And so in addition to the explicit signs here, we also have implicit signs that should 
point us all to belief. Consider this. John was an old man when he wrote this gospel. 75 years at the youngest, 93 years old at the oldest. He's the last surviving apostle. Three gospels have already been written. They've been circulating for years, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why in the world would John decide to write another gospel? John was compelled to write this gospel. And the compulsion that he felt was this. People must believe. I must write because people must believe. I must write because people must believe. Look in verse 31. John writes, all these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John has been writing his gospel in the third person. He's been talking about he and she and them and him and her and them. He even refers to himself throughout the gospel in the third person. But now John switches to the second person and he is talking to you, you, me, all of us, everyone who will ever read this gospel or hear it read. He's talking to us. He writes the gospel in general and this resurrection story in particular so that you and I will believe. This gospel, written after 50 or 60 years of following Jesus Christ, is a sign. You must believe it's true. The verb that John uses here for believe can be translated this way. That you might continue to believe or that you may hold the faith. There's a variant reading in some of the ancient texts that puts the verb in a different tense and that translates it that you may come to believe. And so commentators are at odds with each other about this. You know, commentators don't get out very much. (laughs) They need to get out more. But they argue either that John is writing to produce faith or to foster faith. Some say his goal in writing is to awaken faith for the first time. Others say it's to strengthen faith that's already there. But why? What are they fighting about? Are not both absolutely true? To those that have not yet believed, do they not read and say, hey, here are the signs. Here are the reasons that I should believe. And to those who have already come to belief in reading this truth over and over again, is our faith not strengthened? Of course it is. You know, as I said earlier, the focus of Easter Sunday tends to be on those who have not yet believed. And that's why we get all these preaching tips, you know, because it's an opportunity to produce faith in people. But this day is also for those who have already followed the signs to Jesus. That's why you are here this morning. That's why most of you are here this morning. It's why we celebrate Easter year by year. You didn't come here this morning hoping that I would tell you some story you've never heard with characters you've never heard and some different twist. That's not why you came. You know why you came? You came to hear up from the grave. He arose, right? With a mighty triumph of it or his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, Hallelujah, Christ arose. Is that not what you came to hear? 
Christ the Lord is risen today. Ah, 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 hallelujah, right? That's why we're here. Because every time you and I hear that message, our faith is strengthened to continue on in faith. And that's why John writes. Why would John want people to come to believe? Why would John want people to continue to believe if the resurrection were not true? Why would he encourage anyone who did not believe to believe? What's his gain? John has come to know in his life the truth of the words that Jesus spoke to the disciples. In the upper room on the last night of his life, Jesus said, if the world hates me, hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name. And so in this world, John knew suffering hate, and persecution. Why did John just not stop believing the first time they arrested him for preaching the gospel? Why did John not stop believing the first time they beat him for preaching the gospel? Why did John not stop believing when they stoned his friend Stephen to death? Why did John not stop believing when Herod, King Herod, put his own beloved brother James to death with the sword? Why did John not stop believing when his very best friend in the world, Peter, was crucified upside down for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? And one by one, all the rest of them martyred for believing. Why did John not just say, enough? Why did John just not stop telling people to believe? Why did he not just stop writing for people to believe? He didn't stop because you know why? The resurrection is true. It really happened. Jesus is alive, so John can't stop. Not since he's seen the signs, not since he's experienced life to which the signs have led him, not since he's come to know the resurrected Jesus as he knows him. I know that faith in this world can be fragile. So many people give up when life disappoints them, which so many people usually interpret as meaning God has disappointed them. Something has happened in their life that they did not want. Tragedy, suffering, sickness that they did not anticipate, and it is painful. There's no doubt about it. And so people just say, I give up on believing. I give up on God. It would only be a cruelty For John to write, for people to keep believing in this world unless John knew something that could turn believing into a kindness and a blessing. And John knows what that thing is. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the more difficult question to answer becomes, how can he stop inciting faith, encouraging faith? He can't. Because he knows a life of faith in Christ is better than a life without Christ, and he's known both. Because he knows the ups and downs of faith and the faithfulness of Christ through all of it. And so this gospel, know this, this gospel is a sign. Proof that the resurrection and the power it brings and the change it brings and the hope it brings and the life it brings is real. So you go ahead and analyze scripture all you want. Go for it. 
Apply all the textual criticism you want to the word of God. Jump over on the side with those who would denigrate and tear down and and ridicule the word of God. But you cannot explain this away. You can't. John had no gain from encouraging belief in this world except the gain of seeing the joy that believing brings, the transformation that believing brings, the healing that believing brings, and the brokenness that believing fixes. And that anticipation of standing side by side with other believers in the glorious, joyful presence of Jesus Christ for all eternity. That is John's gain. And so he writes, believe and keep on believing. Believe and keep on believing. You don't need me to tell you that this world that we live in, it's a good Friday world. The day when Jesus was crucified, it's a world of injustice. Jesus, the most perfect one who ever lived, the most righteous one, the most holy one, and yet, in spite of that, there he hung on the cross on Good Friday. It's a world of injustice. It's a world of hate. On Good Friday, people were shouting at Jesus, cursing him, mocking him, calling him names. (laughs) Look around. When have we ever seen our country harsher or uglier or more filled with hate. Good Friday was a day of death. Death to the left, death to the right, death in the center. Death is the one unalterable reality of this world. So someone has said, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. It's true, isn't it? We're Easter people living in a good, in a good Friday world. And so you and I, we've got to keep looking to and following the signs to belief and to life because it is a Good Friday world. We've got to keep believing. We get to keep believing because the resurrection is true. Jesus is alive and he offers life to us. And so if you are here this morning and you have never believed, follow the signs, follow the signs. Follow them to the Jesus who is alive. Follow them to the Jesus who is compassionate, who is patient with you, not wanting you to perish. Jesus does not want you to perish, but to come to repentance and come to life. Believe in him. And if you're here this morning and you already believe, ah, keep believing, right? Keep believing. Keep following the signs. Keep holding the faith because you know what? More life, better life, eternal life with Jesus is just ahead. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for time together this morning on this day of such great joy and great celebration. Father, we don't claim belief because of our own wisdom. Lord, we are humble, those of us here this morning who believe that you have opened our eyes to see the signs. They're they're, they're there, they're plain for all to see. Thank you for opening our eyes to let us see them. 
Uh, if there are people in this room this morning who do not or have not yet believed in you, uh, because I believe in the power of the resurrection, the power of your spirit, I simply pray, open their eyes to see the signs and lead them to life in you. Father, that's our prayer, and we trust you with the results of that prayer. Lord, for those who are here this morning who already believe, encourage our faith. Take this story that we focus on once a year, though it's true every day of the year, but use the telling of it again to encourage us, to strengthen us, to keep believing, to encourage us in a good Friday world. We have hope, Lord, because we are Easter people. We are resurrection people. We are people who carry within us your life. And so help us to live out of that life and help us to make a difference in this good Friday world. For Jesus' sake, we pray in your name. Amen.